You name the incivility, I want to kill it with fire. That's who I am. Test me. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Pete Olushaga, and I want to welcome you to a very special episode of 80% Mental. Quite literally, it's a 80% Mental special. But we're taking a departure from our normal format. If you've listened to the podcast before, you'll know that we pretty much talk about anything and everything to do with the psychology of sport and performance. But when we first started this, we always wanted the conversation to be about more than just sport. Conversation should always be about more than just sport. The idea for this episode actually started to take shape back in the summer of 2020, which was, well, I don't even really know how to describe 2020, to be honest. It started with Australia literally on fire and ended with the UK metaphorically setting itself on fire by finally enacting Brexit. In between, our lives were, and still are, being disrupted at best and utterly devastated at worst by COVID-19 and by a government seemingly intent on playing terrible decisions top trumps with itself. But 2020 was also the year in which a lot of people began to have conversations about race and racism, conversations that they perhaps hadn't had before. On May the 25th of that year, a Minneapolis police officer knelt on the neck of a black man named George Floyd for nine minutes and 29 seconds, killing him in what I have no qualms whatsoever in calling a modern-day lynching. The intense and deeply disturbing juxtaposition of the brutality of this murder and the nonchalance with which it was carried out by an officer of the law was caught on camera. And because we live in the age of Facebook, it was seen by millions almost instantly. Everything changed. Or maybe it didn't. I mean, we've seen things like this before. Richard Brooks fell asleep in his car, shot twice in the back. Daniel Prude experienced a mental health episode and suffered complications from asphyxia after having a spit hood placed on him and his head forced into the pavement with the full weight of an officer on top of him. Brianna Taylor. Atashiana Jefferson shot through the window of her home for the heinous crime of being at home. Aura Rossa, Stefan Clark, Botham Jean, Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, Michelle Cousseau. Freddie Gray, hands and feet shackled in the back of a police van, but with no seatbelt was unable to protect himself as he was thrown around inside the van. He was found 45 minutes later with a nearly severed spinal cord. Tamir Rice, Michael Brown, Tanisha Anderson. And let's go ahead and add Adam Toledo, Dante Wright, and Micaiah Bryant to that list as well. And in the UK, Sheku Boyer, Mikey Powell, Leon Briggs, Sean Rigg, Mark Duggan, Ricky Bishop, we've seen police violence against people of colour too many times before. But in that summer of 2020, with George Floyd, it really did feel different this time. Perhaps because we were all held still by the pandemic without the distractions of the daily commute, the days out, or our beloved sport to keep us entertained. Perhaps our lives temporarily being placed on pause 
meant that we were forced to pay more attention this time, forced to notice the exact way in which a white police officer decided that George Floyd's life as a black man in America did not matter. So the summer of 2020 became the summer of Black Lives Matter. Worldwide protests, statues toppled, streets renamed, and a light shone bright on racism, not only in America, but in the UK and all around the world. Rennie Edo Lodge's Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race flew off the shelves, and rightly so, it's a fantastic book. People were suddenly eager to read about racism and about white privilege, eager to understand racism, current and historical, and to declare loudly, I'm not racist, and to put black squares on their Instagram feeds for a day. Everything changed, and yet nothing changed. Pubs opened, beaches opened, people started to return to what could be mistaken for normal. Bad Decisions Top Trumps was only just getting started at this stage. And so the great racism book club of 2020 kind of lost its momentum. When sport did finally start to return, it was a little different. Face masks, social distancing, virtual audiences, and fake crowd noise. Sport had found itself at the bottom of its own uncanny valley. But while it seemed like the world had already moved on from the events of the summer, athletes were using their stage and their platform to keep conversations about race and racism at the forefront of our minds. Black Lives Matter protests in the Premier League, the NBA players taking the court with Black Lives Matter and other social justice messages on their jerseys in place of their own names. It was sport that was keeping the conversation going. Now, given the history of black protest in sport, this is hardly surprising. Lewis Hamilton and Naomi Osaka stand on the shoulders of Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf, Maya Moore, Colin Kaepernick, Craig Hodges, to name a few. There are many, many, many more. Racism and sport have a long history together. When we think about racism in sport, we think about bananas being thrown at black footballers in the 70s and the 80s, and we think of the monkey chants. And we tend to think of those things as relics. And we say things like, well, that doesn't happen anymore. Well, it kind of does. We say, that's a thing of the past, isn't it? Well, not really. And we say, well, that was just an isolated incident. Well, it kind of wasn't. Racism is alive and well, and while we might want to think that sport is somehow exempt from it, that sport is the last true meritocracy where only talent and hard work matter and colour is irrelevant, while we might want to believe that, I'm here to tell you that none of that is true. And in this special episode of 80% Mental, we're going to explore why. Well, as you know, if you're a regular listener, we start each episode with a question and we generally muddle our way through trying to answer it with the help of some special guests. And the stars have finally aligned and it's with great pleasure uh, that I introduce the one and only John Amici. At least I, I assume you're the one and only John Amici. I haven't talked. <laughs> there might be more. Um, I'm sure there's an imposter somewhere. <laughs> uh, John is an, a, a respected organizational psychologist, best-selling New York Times author, sought-after public speaker, executive coach, and founder of APS Intelligence. 
and has been endorsed as a Jedi by Mark Hamill. John, thank you very much for joining us on 80% Mental. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Um, I, I don't want to uh, suggest in any way that being endorsed by Mark Hamill is the, the most impressive thing. In it, no, no, no. It's unequivocally the most important thing, and the most impressive thing. There's no doubt. I was just going to say, I was going to throw that out there and let our listeners decide, but uh, yeah, I, I was impressed by it anyway. Um, so now, because this is a, a, an episode on racism in sport, uh, our listeners might well think that we're going to ask what we should do about racism in sport, because that would make perfect sense. But I think before we can do that, before we can you know, really do anything about racism in sport, I personally think the question needs to be, how do we talk about racism in sport? How can we go beyond those empty slogans, the kick it out, the zero tolerance, and actually have meaningful conversations about racism? So that's what we're going to explore on this episode of 80% Mental. And I'm going to jump straight in and ask you, John, you know, in your opinion, what, what stops us from having those meaningful conversations about racism? Human beings have a need to feel innocent and fair. Anything that compromises a sense of innocence and fairness will be pushed to the margins. It's why we avert our eyes when we see rough sleepers. It's why we don't look at them. Hmm. Because looking at them and the, the, and the, the panoply of them, the, 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 just the sheer numbers of them, tells you instantly that you are part of the system that allows that to be possible, that it cannot be that each of these individual people is so inherently flawed that they deserve this fate. People need to feel innocent and fair. They need to feel as they cheer for their badge, their team, their player, that they are faultless and blameless and they've earned their own way here and, and nothing they do harms anyone else. And that is why many people can't have a conversation around a legitimate conversation around race and racism because it Im implicates us all either through our actions or our avoidance of action. And then there is another part of the sports world, the sports business world that has been run like a 21st century plantation for a long, long time. And they quite like that. Hmm. And they think that black people should be grateful that we let a 0.00 something fraction of them earn a lot of money. I'm a cynic, just in case that's not coming through. <laughs> not loud and clear. Um, I, I, I think in, in sport in particular as well, you know, you mentioned kind of broader society, but in sport as well, we have this real need to see it almost as a meritocracy. Whereas, you know, on, on the pitch, it's different. There's no... Um, uh, you know, advantage. Color doesn't mean anything on the pitch. We have a need to see it that way. And it's, it's, it's not the case, is it? No, it's, it's absolutely not the case. Meritocracy. <laughs> I mean, it, it, if people understood where that came from, how it was a satirical use of that phrase, it was, it was used back in the day, and I've forgotten the name of the author who did it. You probably know, but it's, it's an author who talked about meritocracy in, as in a satirical way, referring to the, the aristocracy and royalty. 
as as a meritocratic situation. So we've we've never quite understood that that whole thing was tongue in cheek and that meritocracy is not real, even in the places where we think it's real, like you know eight second races or whatever else where we think it's just not it never has been there's a lot of you know you mentioned this kind of denial of racism because we want to see society as fair and if we admit perhaps that racism does exist we also have to admit that we are complicit in it and that we have to do something about it mm-hmm. so there's a lot of denial as to and you know we we both talked about the Sewell report that came out a few weeks ago and just the mental gymnastics that people were doing. You know, when people were pointing out that actually, look, here's some examples of institutional racism. Uh, like I say, the mental gymnastics people were doing to deny that it existed were actually quite impressive. But we're quite happy to admit racism when it's somebody doing a monkey chant in the stands or somebody who is, uh, you know, screaming racist abuse in someone's face. We're quite happy to admit, yes, that's a race, you know, that's a problem with racism. Again, you know, what? why do we deny it so much? Why is there such a hesitation to admit that that deep structural racism might be a factor in some of the inequality that we, that we see? Because if it's a factor in the inequality, it's a factor in those people who rise and thrive and succeed in the system. But also because the acknowledgement of the egregious racist is actually very convenient you know, the, you know the the moron who throws a banana, or or, or does a monkey chant, or, or or yells the N word. This complete ignoramus is actually a tool for the oppressor. He's really useful. Invariably, he it's, he's really useful because the ejection of that person can be used of evidence of equality. When it isn't evidence of equality, when you throw somebody, when you throw a murderer into j into prison. This does not suggest that the world is, is, is free of people who would murder. It doesn't suggest that the world is somehow a place where you could never, you know, women do not have to stop using their keys as a weapon as they walk anymore. No, 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 nothing's changed. It's, you know, we live in this weird compliance culture where we think the, the removal of the egregious and kind of as long as the, the, the norm, the average situation is no one's doing anything illegal, even if it's unethical is where we live, and and sports lives in that place. Sports is a compliance culture. It's about rules. It's not about ethics. I was looking today. I had another conversation with somebody else, and I'm really actually, I'm I'm doing that proper psychology thing where we examine our own state, (laughs) and I'm furious today, and it's probably going to color everything I do now from the rest of the day, but I'm just, I'm furious because I don't dabble in sports for a reason. It infuriates me. Because you look at their bloody principles, you look at the IOC charter, you look at the FIFA and FIBA chart- charters, and if they followed what they say are their core principles, we would never have this conversation. And yet, here we are again. This is why we can't talk about racism, because if we did, we'd have to juxtapose it against a set of principles that could never allow racism, not on an institutional, systemic or individual basis, and yet here we are. Yeah, and I, there's a couple of things that jumped out in what you just said there. I mean, the first is we're, we're, we're constantly shocked and surprised. Well, I'm not, but and I'm sure you're not, but we 
are constantly shocked and surprised every time there's an incident of racism. People come onto Twitter and onto Facebook and express their disgust and surprise that how can this still be happening? How can this still be going on in, in 2021? And, you know, I, I think if, like if I slap you in the face every day and you're shocked and surprised by it, like at some point, well, well, I mean, that just makes you an idiot because at some point you have to realize that there's a recurring issue here and we need to address it. So the shock and the surprise is, is kind of part of this whole denial that it exists on a broader level as far as I'm concerned. The second thing that you mentioned there was, um, you know, the, the, the charters and the schemes and the campaigns to end racism in sport. And they've been around since, well, forever. Coaching fast track uh, programs for uh, what I call the BAMAs, uh, kick it out, uh, say no to racism, all of that stuff. You know, why is it that they don't or, or can't work, do you think? Because like you say, we're still here having this conversation. They can't work because they're never given enough power or influence to do anything. These 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 organizations are adjuncts. They they exist forced they're forced to kind of suckle off the teat of, of the FA or the Premier League or somebody else. You, you, you can see that with the union in football, for example, where where funding funny how prescient that is of today actually what's going on in politics but when somebody pays you it's very you you do expect a favor in return if someone gives you something and and these organizations are funded and then have no kind of statutory teeth to do anything about it on the surprise part one of the things you have to realize is that is part of the reason people are surprised is because is is because black people are strangers to people who aren't black Hmm. we're strangers the, people don't know us that's why they're surprised when, you know when i tell people i get stopped and searched they're like no because i'm the right kind of negro you see i speak well i have an education and qualifications and so i don't fit they think of that apocryphal kid from tottenham still don't know who that is but apparently there's an apocryphal kid from tottenham who is the one who should get stopped the one with all the knives hmm. And so we're strangers. It's outrageous that people don't know that that this is the status quo. And if you don't know at this stage, it's your fault. I want to be very clear here. There is there is an implication, a moral and ethical implication for the things that clever people choose not to know. Now, I'm not a sports psychologist, so I'm not suggesting that every every kind of subject matter expert should have every expertise. But when it comes to some things, the idea that you can exist in this world in 2021 without realizing what's happening to people who are different than you is a choice that you've made because it's a 0.00038 second Google search away. Oh, and, and in the reverse, it doesn't happen. Women know men. Mm. Black people know white. Asian people. We, we know the other when you're the minority because you have to to survive. I have to know how white people will respond when I get in close proximity in a business environment. I have to know how white people respond when I walk behind them on the street. It's what keeps me safe. So why, 
you know, so part of the reason we don't have this discussion about racism is because the people who are the supposed subject, who are the targets of racism as opposed to the perpetrators, are strangers and therefore not important. Hmm. I, th- I think as well there's there's a lack of motivation as well because like you say, you know, the, the, the people at the top aren't motivated to have these discussions and they're not motivated to make these changes. You look at people like Greg Clark, who's the, the former chairman of the FA, who described institutional racism as fluff and was quite happy to refer to uh, black footballers as, as, as colored. You look at the uh, Rooney rule in the NFL, you know, designed to as a, as a hiring policy for, for coaches of color. I can't remember how many years ago it was instituted, but you know, the same time now we have the same number of coaches of color in the NFL in a, in a league that's 70% black um, because the league is run by old white men. So there's no motivation there to have these conversations. And to make but it, these it's, it's, I think, so just to, just to be fair, it, it, it isn't just run by, it's not because they're old white men that we don't have any black coaches. Because let's think about the implication of this. You actually don't want to pick from the largest possible talent pool. You are actively choosing to have limited talent supply in an environment of extreme money. Hmm. And so it's actually old white racists is the accurate thing. Because otherwise, old white men wouldn't necessarily choose familiarity over cash. Sure. I'm laughing because I was actually going to say that, and I stopped myself from saying that. I stopped myself from describing them as old. Yeah, well, I'm not going to be hired by the NFL anytime. (laughs) I can't imagine I am either. Um, But it's interesting because, you know, it's it's almost like we're looking in in the wrong place for racism in that respect. Um, You know, we're focusing on the banana throwing and the name calling, but actually the reason why we don't have, well, one of the potential reasons why we don't have black coaches, but we have a 70% black uh, playing staff and same, same in the NBA. I think it's like 80% black players and, uh, hovers around about 30%, uh, coaches. I think one of the reasons that we have that isn't because of that overt type racism. It's because the very language of sport itself is steeped in racism. Whiteness is clever. Whiteness is strategic. Blackness is powerful. Blackness is impulsive these tropes haunt us. They haunt us, and and nobody seems to want to do anything about that. We see successful black coaches as outliers, not consistency, and that's why you see white coaches who fail time and time again at numerous different organizations keep getting rehired, whereas a black coach who fails once is seen as, there you go, I told you. It's it's absolutely exhausting. It's ridiculous too because I don't want to create this kind of Benetton ad in sport. I'm not interested in that. I just don't understand why, if you are nominally interested in the concept of meritocracy and making it, you know, come into being in some form, why you wouldn't be interested in the best possible talent, even if it didn't look the way you expect. I don't get that. I actively have hired people who I knew I wouldn't like. And and I say that because when they arrived, the way they thought, the way they operated was so radically different from me that I found it irritating. <laughs> and then you get to know the person, you realize well, that there's lots going on there and they've got, they bring perspectives that I would not bring. And you just see this huge advantage 
And then you get to connect with them as a human being and you realize that your irritation was with their cognitive style, personality, but not necessarily with anything that would intrinsically get in the way of a, a, a real and authentic and valuable friendship, as well as being brilliant colleagues, as well as providing strategic and operational value. That is what I'm interested in. I want to win. I just, where is that? Where is that in, in the top? It's like when it comes to kicking the ball or throwing the ball or putting in a hoop or whatever, wrestling on a mat, whatever people are doing, people are very interested in the kind of cutthroat, yeah, rip them in half kind of winning. Mm. The kind of winning where the loser limps away and never wants to face you again. And yet when it comes to decisions that will impact that, that are about ownership or about leadership, they they then it's equivocation yeah and it's 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 like you said earlier it's a it's an active choice to be racist to believe in those racist tropes because and you know in in fairness i don't know i think if people are continually exposed to this so you know we talked about the language of sport and there's a, a a study uh carried out by some guys at the university of massachusetts I can't say that word, Massachusetts. Um, everyone knows what I mean, that's fine. Uh, and, and they looked at 40 years worth of data and it, it was exactly what you said. Non-white players are praised for um, f- um, uh, physical abilities, so gifted, natural athlete, uh, beast, those types of words. White players praise more for their intelligence, uh, calm, cool, smart. And if anybody thinks that that's just an American thing, there was a company, uh, a Dutch company called Run Repeat. I think they were Dutch anyway. They did the same thing in all of the uh, European soccer leagues, found exactly the same thing, exactly the same thing, the way that we refer to athletes. Now, if you're exposed to that language as a player, a coach, a fan, an owner, like constantly, that like constant drip, drip, drip of racism. Is it any wonder that you view black players in one way and white players in another, and then you make judgments about their ability to coach uh, and, you know, progress from the playing field? I, you know, I'm not trying to justify it. I'm just saying once we know that's the case, surely then we can make a choice to override what we are being constantly fed. Yeah, but that takes effort. And people do appear to be intrinsically lazy. <laughs> and I'm, 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 I mean, I'm talking about the impulse that's been with us since prehistoric times to conserve energy mm-hmm. is still there. And so when faced with a barrage of thoughts and then people tell you lazy stuff like the wisdom of crowds, which helps you to think that, that, that random people telling you stuff about different people is probably real then if enough people say it. Mm. And so it's not surprising people acquiesce. But it is a choice to acquiesce. You, you decided, if you think that all black people are, all women are. I was looking at some data uh, the other day. Oh, for the life of me, I can't remember where it was. But I was looking at some data that was showing the, the, the norm graphs of, of men's and women's heights. And, and you look at them and the kind of, the difference between them is pretty radical. Mm. They've got this. In fact, I might have it if I can read my uh, my screen. Uh, the, the difference between them was pretty radical, as you'd expect. But then, um, yeah, the effect size was was huge. Effect size like one point seven or something, which is statistically very large. Mm. And then, 
you realize suddenly that people think that that height difference is actually the same as the difference in confidence, the difference in ability to to do negotiations, the ability to take risks, the ability. They think that the difference between men and women are that the effect size is that big, and it's not. It's statistically trivial for most of this stuff. And it's a choice now for us to not... That information is available. And I know that science is in this weird place where it's both discredited and saving our lives. But that is available information. The same thing for blackness and whiteness. Somebody, you know, Bill Nye is on TikTok telling people, helping them to realize if you overlay a map of UV penetration on the earth with skin color, that's it. That's the difference. Not intelligence or professionalism or criminality. This is available information. Hmm. And if people if people are buying into the opposite kind of tropes and stereotypes, that laziness is killing us. 45 seconds in an internet connection. So they need to find out pretty much most things. Yeah. And wh- why wouldn't you want to, right? Why wouldn't you want a life that, has a richness to it not because all black people are different because like the idea that i am somehow intrinsically the same as you because our skin colors at least at this time because i've been in the sun (laughs) vaguely match is ridiculous but why wouldn't you want the richness of, of other people's experiences instead of what's happening now which is appears the the bit of blackness that people want access to in order to learn is is our tears yeah. If one could learn by sucking down on people's tears, it even if that worked, it would probably be unethical, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, I and I think it comes back to what you said right at the start that if you if you accept that there is an issue, then you have to accept that things aren't fair, you're complicit in it and you have to do something about it. And people don't want to do that. Yeah. It's true. But, you know, and, and again, we're saying people, it's just that if we're talking about sports, the significant people and bodies within sports want to do nothing yeah. about this. I'm not suggesting that every fan or every player doesn't want to do anything about it, but there isn't enough of a movement. I was talking to somebody today who was talking about and, and a, a Liverpool, a reporter in Liverpool, who's talking about about why we weren't doing anything about racism in sport. And as like, you know, is it the blue collar fans? And he's like, being blue collar doesn't make you racist. Mm. That's, that's not the problem. The, 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 you know, whether it's a lack of means or whatever the implication is of that is not the problem. But what is the problem is that when six Premier League clubs decide to go and form their own league, the world stops. Boris Johnson stops yeah. and does something about it. And fans protest and threaten to withdraw, and some of them do withdraw their season tickets. But when somebody on their team was racist in front of television cameras in the world, they came back the next day. So there is a matter of principle here that is really difficult, I think, for people to just address for themselves. So I I know I said that I wasn't going to ask how we solve the problem, um, but I am. 
you know, when, when those racist ideas about athletes, their capabilities, um, you know, when they're so deeply ingrained and when it has the effect that we've talked about where um, black people are and people of color are overrepresented on the pitch, but then vastly underrepresented at the level of coach, at the level of owner and in the boardroom, um, you know, how, where do we even start? You know, where do we even start in trying to reverse that? Targets. I hate targets. They have unintended consequences. The recipients of targets, whether they be women or black people, end up feeling as if their achievement is is attenuated, maligned, mm-hmm. marred by the target. Other people who would be competing for the same jobs feel like unqualified people are being proposed ahead of them. And everybody, it seems, thinks that they're wildly unfair. And yet, when you look at boardrooms, I was just looking at the um, Egon Zender, is it, Um, board report on ethnicity on boards. Mm. And it's just really clear the only thing that works is targets. When you tell people this is the number that you have to have and there'll be a sanction of some description and people like Goldman Sachs, hardly the bastion of diversity necessarily themselves, but will say, I won't be a part, we won't, we won't govern your IPO if you don't have a certain amount of diversity. All of a sudden then there's consequences. It has to be targets. They are a blunt instrument, unintended consequences, hate them, and they're the only thing that's been shown to work. So what would you say then to the, to those people who would you know, argue against it and say, well, that's not fair? The status quo is not fair. The current status quo is not a meritocracy. It's an absurd notion to suggest it is. I, I am a deeply, deeply privileged man. I'm, I'm talking to you from a penthouse in Covent Garden <laughs> overlooking a bloody courtyard where I've got an Italian restaurant and everybody knows my name and it's great. And I, lovely. I have a, a collared shirt and a pair of jeans that I have by my front door that I have to put on before I go to Pret because I know that reduces the chances of me having an interaction with the police. So don't talk to me about meritocracy because I am deeply, deeply privileged. And also, people notice what happens when you t- when you describe yourself as deeply privileged. Nothing. I didn't light on fire. I didn't explode. It simply helps me to understand when I look at other people how privileged I am and, and that my experience is not like theirs. Or how might there make me ask that question? How might your experience not be like mine? When somebody doesn't understand a concept that I think is really e- easy, maybe I think back, to the privilege I had because my mum read to me every damn night. Maybe I think back to the excitement my mum had when I cracked open a book on biology or psychology or something else Mm. and made it seem like this was the most important thing. Maybe they didn't have that. Maybe they don't like to read boring research things in the middle of the night like I do. There's lots of things. If you don't like targets, do you like inequality? Because right now, you may think that women are everywhere and black people are everywhere. But I just want to give, let's, let's give some context here. You're thinking that because you're looking in the context of the last three or five years. And you're suddenly saying, oh, my God, now there's two of those circus everywhere. 
oh my God, look at look at this bloke and that bloke. And there's a guy with a Mancunian accent who's also a scientist now. And now there's all kinds of difference. Yeah. And you're looking here, instead of remembering that it's 107 years since Emily Davison was killed by King George V's horse to get voter rights. 107 years. Progress doesn't look so great in that context. Thanks to your brother. 1,800 years since black people have been in this country. The progress made doesn't look so great in the context of that x-axis, does it? Mm. So don't talk to me about targets unless you have another proposed solution that isn't going to take until I die. You, um, you, you mentioned privilege there, and you rather famously made a video, was it last year, about white privilege, which I think is fair to say uh, had, had a reaction. Um, some, some, you know, a, a good deal of praise in fairness, but also a bit of a backlash to some of the ideas that you may be expressed in that video. I know for a fact that there are people who'll be listening to this, my colleagues in sport, uh, colleagues in psychology, uh, coaches, athletes, who will still balk at the idea of white privilege. Um, have you got any examples? Can you can you illustrate? I mean, you illustrated it so clearly in that video, and I I, I struggle to see why people don't still get this. Yeah, but have you got anything that might help here to those people? I can, who are, well, who are let's start with why people can't get it. They can't get it because people need to feel innocent and they need to feel fair. They need to feel like they are blameless for the way the world is differentially for other people, and they need to feel as if their success is based on a meritocratic environment where anybody could have done the same thing with what they've got. The moment you introduce privilege, you realize that's not the case. So for most of us, stairs just aren't much of an impediment, right? They, they weren't for me. Now I'm 50 and having played sport, I do feel differently about stairs, <laughs> but not to the point of a disability and, and not to diminish mm -hmm. that. But I have friends who are wheelchair users. And until I became their friend, no, notice, not, not when I knew them and had them as colleagues and enjoyed them, until they became my friend, I didn't realize the indignities that they faced that I had never considered. The idea that when they want to go to the loo on a night out with friends in the before times when we used to go out together, when they want to go to the loo, they have to go through this, this weird charade to get a special kind of key from somebody who may or may not give a damn. And then they go to a closet that's usually got tables all around it. And then they open the door and they have to run the gauntlet of every piece of cleaning supplies that's been thrown in there in the way. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's a small thing, but we don't know about it. The thing that Daniel Moscato did, uh, the, 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 the woman on Twitter who put a message on that said, women, what would you do if there was a curfew for all men after 9 yeah. p.m.? And you suddenly realize the sheer banality of the everyday impediments. One woman who said, I wouldn't take a, a second set of clothes, a woman from New York who said, I wouldn't take a second set of clothes with me, baggy jeans and a sweatshirt so I look like a bloke when I walk, well, she didn't say bloke, but I look like a man when I walk mm. home woman in Brazil who said she, sit, she lives by the sea, but she'd sit at night on the beach and listen to the waves. The woman who ran in Manchester and said, I'd run with both my earbuds in. And as a man who thinks he's woke, I had no idea about this. Hmm. I always thought that my mum carried this big set of keys because she was important and she knew she had <laughs> access to lots of doors. I didn't realize 
that she carried a set of keys because she was a GP and a woman who went on home visits often late at night and had to protect herself. Mm. Everybody who's listening to this who doesn't believe in white privilege believes in some other form of privilege, and I'm, I'm done with that. It doesn't end at male and white privilege. It doesn't end there. Mm. Everybody knows there's an innate advantage being born into a family with means, with money, versus not. Everybody knows there's an advantage to being to going to a school with eight people in the class sizes versus 40. And yet when it comes to this one thing, all of a sudden we pretend that there's no difference between being black and white. And yet how many of the people who deny white privilege here who are white, how many of you worry every time you leave your house that the person who taps you on your shoulder will be grabbing you by the arm and saying, sir, I'm sorry, you resemble a description. It, it, it is impossible for learned people to be that dense. Yeah, I, I find it willful. It's, it's a, a conscious choice to not get it, I think. Absolutely it is. Um, and I, I understand it impinges a sense of fairness in the world, but I just, what I don't understand is I gain no pain from recognizing the sequence of advantages that put me where I am. Mm-hmm. If I couldn't use words the way I use words, I wouldn't be this kind of weird black representative out there in the UK. <laughs> but that is a function of the grammar school that my mother made me sit the entrance for and then worked. I remember she worked so hard extra hours as a junior doctor to make sure that I could go to that, that fee-paying school. Mm-hmm. That, that's an advantage I had to deny that, to pretend that if I'd have gone to a comprehensive. If my mum hadn't hit me with the sweeper flex, this is not parenting advice. If she hadn't <laughs> threatened me, she didn't actually hit me, but if she hadn't threatened me, with hitting me with the sweeper flex every time I sounded like I was from Stockport. You tell me, Stockport accent, am I the person people want to hear from? Mm-hmm. There's a privilege for accents too. It's like you can't pretend anymore. And people in the position of power, psychologists, especially sports psychologists, who I imagine are the ones who, who, who really would get the most out of what you have to offer here. It's like the people you're working with, you, if you deny the privilege of whiteness in the presence of a black person, you do them harm. Yeah. I, I think, you know, it's a case of also people not wanting to think that they haven't earned what they've got. Um, I worked really hard to get where I am you know I, I worked really really hard but I put minimal almost no effort into being born in a country that wasn't at war for example I put very little effort into that I put very little effort into being born to you know as as you said a mother who made sure that I could read by the time I was free I I, I didn't really do very much I didn't play a huge part in that mm-hmm. but I'm aware of that of the advantages that that's given me um I think one one obvious example in sport, well, in, you know, forget sport for a second. But I think one obvious example of privilege is not having to scroll through your social media every day and see people being killed, brutalized, 
harassed just for looking the same as you, for having yeah. the same skin color as you. Yes. And I, I know personally that takes that has taken an emotional toll on me uh, doing that. It would be remiss of us to think that that didn't also take an emotional toll on our athletes and coaches and psychologists and on, on my colleagues of color as well. Um, I don't I don't know if you have any thoughts about, about yeah, that. Yeah, it, it is exhausting to see people murdered for looking like you. It's exhausting to hear the debates around the how much your life matters. It's exhausting to hear the equivocation of supposedly good people around issues of conscience. It's exhausting to see one of your own pretend that institutionalized racism doesn't exist. The, the, the emotional toll is actually quite acute. I, I, that's why I have a countdown on my computer. 112 days until I go on holiday. <laughs> and and, and I, I, I say this, you know, that it's not a question of going into the sun. I, I must escape. There's a, there's a scene from The Matrix. There's a scene from The Matrix where um, I think Morpheus has been captured and the agent takes the thing out of his ears and he just says, he, he, he just levels with him. He says, I must escape. I must get out of here. It's the smell, for <laughs> want of a better term. It saturates me, and that is where I am. I, I am a squeezed orange. I. It's amazing to wake up every morning. Enraged, and and, and yet I I can't shout. I have to add more syllables to the words I use to to manage the rage that I feel at having the same conversation again and again because people don't want to feel bad. Hmm. Children go hungry in the summertime because people don't want to feel bad. Boys, especially in, in parts of town that are working class, get stopped and searched disproportionately because people don't want to feel bad. Police can kill people in custody because people don't want to feel bad. And I just, I don't understand how the balance, the scales of justice in the minds of people listening to this could tolerate the sacrifice on one side. It is, it is almost as if, and I said this recently, but I, I don't think it resonated, but it is as if people believe, good people, who want equality believe that like we're Aztec, we're, we're, we're Mayans or something. And if we sacrifice enough black people, something magical will happen. If enough black blood is spilled, equality will dawn like a solstice. And, and it won't. The, the ground will just become bloodied and muddied. So I'm here with John Amici on this 80% Mental special episode on racism in sport. And John, sport's been really important in the last few years in keeping conversations about so social justice going. Um, 
as we've seen, though, there's been a fairly predictable backlash to that. I'm thinking of the booing of players taking the knee, for example. Um, the, the reaction that we see to white athletes discussing issues out of their sport is very different to the reaction that black athletes get. I'm uh, thinking uh, Drew Brees, for example, the uh, white American football quarterback, has the right to an opinion, whereas LeBron James should just shut up and dribble. This is as, as predictable a response as it is entirely true. Um, but what can what can we do as people who work in sport, people listening to this podcast, so psychologists, coaches, so on, to really support athletes who want to use their voices to talk about social issues? So I think it's part of our job. Um, I, I'm not a sports psychologist, but I think it is part of the job of sports psychologists and indeed all psychologists, I'm an occupational psychologist, to, to facilitate performance. And that means when it comes to, we can't stop where the court stops, where the field stops. I think it's a huge mistake. I, I've seen a business psychologists get clients and talk to them, and then if they start to wander into their life outside of sport, they say, well, I'm not a therapist, but I'm not looking for a therapist, just that that context seeps in. So what we could be doing is helping people to, to, to understand how they can best use their voice. Helping them role play with you. You know, this is how I feel. I don't have all the information about this circumstance, this situation. Here's some resources where you could educate yourself. Here's a way that you could have this conversation doing minim the minimal damage you can to your career in life. Helping you understand the context of the, of the, the backlash that you might receive and how to handle that. To me, that's the mature and indeed ethical way that support staff of all types should be having the conversation because you're not going to stop athletes from speaking out at this point. It's that, that ship has sailed. <laughs> but what we can do is make sure, here's how we can be congruent. Here's how you can do it in a way that, regardless of whether it receives backlash, will be so dignified and ethical that the backlash will seem unreasonable at some point. Though I think Colin Kaepernick would argue that. Yeah, I, I think one of the one of the perhaps problems with that, or one of the issues that I find with that, is that a lot of people in my field, in particular, and, and psychologists in general, feel a need to be almost politically neutral in inverted commas. Oh, I, I, I know, I, <laughs> and, and and they feel the need to not take sides. And, oh my God! And, and, there is no such thing. Well, I, I, know, I know, I know. I'm kind of preempting what you're going to say. I think I've got an idea. Ooh. But th th there's this genuine belief, though I think, in the field that we have to be really neutral on all issues. And and I, I don't know the reason for that. I suspect it's because people don't want to alienate the potential client base. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing at this point. But you know, what what would you say? And again, I, I feel like I know where this is going. But what would you say right. to, to those people who, who think, well, I can't take a stand on these issues. I don't want to speak out on these issues because I have to remain neutral. Yeah, it's bollocks. It's bollocks. It's <laughs> self-serving. It is self-serving, indiscriminately stupid bollocks. Sport has been political since the first naked man ran for, to marathon to inform their political leaders of a victory and then drop dead. Sport has always been political. It's a political performance. 
most major mega events. For, for us to pretend, listen, we don't want to get involved. We want to stay to position. Psychologists want to stay out of the mire for exactly the reason you've talked about. People fear making themselves toxic. They fear making themselves controversial. So maybe the football team that they'd really like to work with won't want to work with them in the future. We have an ethical responsibility. We are scientists with an ethical responsibility, a duty of candor and a duty of care that extends well beyond the court. I, I tell all the people that we work with as a business psychologist, your company may be paying me, but when you are sat in the room with me, you are my client. Hmm. And when, when I think when sports, the sports psychologists work with athletes, yes, you're being paid by Manchester United or whoever else, but the individual in front of you, that, that green kid from the, from the, 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 the lower ranks of a team, that's your client in this moment, their best interest. Not pushing them to, to go through the, the pain of their hamstring industry or what, injury or whatever else. They're your client. There's no politically neutral. In a world where some of these athletes can leave in their nice cars and immediately be stopped and searched, there's no politically neutral. I think it's an abdication of our responsibility um, as learned ethical scientists to suggest that the world is not inherently political and sport with it. I know that that's hard. I, I, even as I say this, I'm aware that it's hard. There are tons of people who will never work with me. Tons of organizations that my name is, is kryptonite. <laughs> and many of these organizations, my team and I could help but I have made it so that that bolt is shot. But whenever I meet a new client, what I can say to them is that my principles are intact and I will do what's best. And fundamentally, whatever the team, doing what's best for the individual athletes will be in the long run what's best for a team. I mean, you know, you mentioned there that it's, it's, it's a difficult step to take, I think, for a lot of people to... So maybe speak out on some of these issues. And, and, and I see a lot of, of colleagues who flirt with the idea. They'll like a tweet or maybe even go so far as to retweet something that's vaguely political. Um, but that's about it. That's about the, the, the extent of them venturing into this, this world of, uh, well, the world, what's actually happening around us. Um, so if it's, if it's so difficult, I mean, what, what can people do? What can... I'm thinking about my colleagues here, you know, what's the first sort of step that they can take to venturing into this idea of, of almost opening up and, and acknowledging that the world is inherently political and it does exist around us and that that has an impact on the systems that they're working in. Yeah. I mean, we, we can't have this debate here, this debate between kind of the liberal theory of, of, of social challenges, you know, liberal race theory, liberal uh, class theory, these types of things versus I suppose critical theories we, we can't have that the sport is political full stop the world is political it's all wrapped up the thing i would start with is not action <clears throat> not doing anything first introspection this should be one of the things that i suppose we it are really good at right? psychologists <laughs> right? we should be but the idea that i think a lot of psychologists part of the reason they struggle around this because they don't know what they stand for they have no idea and i don't it's not remotely controversial 
to stand for things ethically. So I'm against racism. Uh, I'm not. I'm not kind of ambivalent about it. I'm not <clears throat> forgiving about it. I'm against it. I want to destroy it with fire. The concept and the fallout from it, not the people. Mm-hmm. Sexism and misogyny. Yeah, I want to destroy that. I'm not ambivalent. I'm not on the fence. Uh, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, you name the incivility that you can name, and I'm against it. And I can't have an authentic relationship with a client if they don't understand that. Even a racist client, for example, and I have had clients who are racist and anti-Semitic, and they need to know where I stand because that's the only authentic way to have a relationship with them. And in this psychology lark, we sometimes like to believe we're a lot more effective than we actually are. But we are definitely not effective at all if we don't build that. It's not rapport, a relationship built on something that is honest and transparent. So for the psychologists who are worrying how to do this, don't start with liking the occasional tweet from a left-wing or right-wing politician to declare your thing. Sit down and actually consider what do you stand for? In the context of this complex, convoluted, disrupted world that we live in, what do you stand for? Maybe when you figure that out, the idea of of retweeting or, or, or liking or siding with arguments that are congruent with your principles won't feel so difficult. You... Um... You talked about different types of incivility there. We, you know, we're talking about racism on this particular episode, but I think we're seeing a lot more in the way of perhaps racialized and gendered responses to athletes in the media. Uh, I'm thinking in particular, uh, a fairly recent example, Shikari Richardson, who was uh, banned from the Olympics. For yes. Marijuana. Oh, my goodness. And then you have uh, Alan Hadzic, uh, who was accused of sexual assault by multiple women. And the powers that be basically bent over backwards to enable him to still to still compete. I mean, you can you can look up those stories if you're if you're unfamiliar with them. Um, but, you know, we're also seeing the. Uh, misogynoir and the transphobia around athletes like Casta Semenya and the recent uh, issues with the IOC ruling and that as well. Again, look up that story if you're unfamiliar. But, you know, I mean, this could be a whole episode in itself, but I just wondered if you had any comment on some of those uh, issues that we've, we've seen in the last few months. I find it incredibly frustrating because you mentioned bend over backwards. To, was it a fen- Is he a fencer, I think? He's a fencer. To you know, separate accommodation to allow somebody who's who's an alleged and accused <laughs> uh, abuser to still compete in the Olympics, and not to diminish any sport in particular, but it's fencing. So it's not like it's the multi-million pound sport that we're talking about here. But still, they made those accommodations outrageous. Yeah. What I think is is problematic, and and something that we as psychologists should be helping people to work through is the purposeful obfuscation around this. The idea that people can, you know, Shikari, the idea that someone who's gone through trauma, who self-medicates with a drug that isn't performance enhancing, gets punished for the for the look of it. If she, uh, I think I've said it to you before, if she, if she didn't look the way she looked, if she was a more conservative looking black woman, mm-hmm. maybe even a lighter skinned black woman, 
I don't think she'd have the same treatment that she got, but she looks ghetto to people mm -hmm. because people are idiots. <laughs> in the same way that I'm sure you've had similar comments as that. In fact, I know you have. I've seen very public stuff that's gone on yeah. around you. And it's absurd. I, what we need to do is help people to realize that what they're doing is a macroaggression. It's not, it's not, there's nothing micro about it. You are, when you pretend that your action is not driven by the real motivator, it's incredibly dangerous. Mm. Well, no, 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 no. I, I'm not excluding these types of people because they are immigrants. I'm excluding them because they, they're, there's some criminals in them. When you lie about what you're doing, it, it allows you to continue to do egregious acts. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to, to have people who are, and especially allies, unfortunately, because, you know, me saying it as a black person, as a gay person, when it's those issues doesn't seem to have any impact. We need allies to speak up and, and call call out the motivations, the often corrupt and, and disgusting motivations for what they are. Yeah, and I, I think particularly with uh, the issue surrounding Casta Semenya and the other athletes who've undergone the same, I mean, I'll call it what it is, it's pretty horrific treatment over the last uh, few years and threats that they have to have surgery and so on and so forth because we have this idea of uh, of, of what being female actually is, and it's particularly uh, impactful on on black female athletes. Yep, this is, I mean, and that's stark too, because when you look, there are lots of examples of, of, I mean, even with this language, I hesitate to use it because I think it's it's clumsy. But what have been referred to as masculine-looking white women who do not get the same scrutiny or treatment as what are referred to as masculine-looking women, mm -hmm. um, muscular even. And that's problematic because, again, while that difference in, in treatment happens without anybody saying, by the way, can you see what's, what the common reason here is for this? It can continue. There's a whole group of people who can continue to be racist and not get called on it. it the, the, the treatment of transgender people broadly... Um, is ridiculous in sport, especially considering the numbers that we're talking about. Mm. The Some of the language that's used, the idea that men in their droves will run to castrate themselves in the most profound ways in order to get an Olympic gold is such an absurd narrative. And yet, where are the psychologists, where are the thinkers within sport calling that out for what it is? And a ridiculous escalation of an absurd argument. Mm. And then lastly, on this, I'd just say, if there's ever an example of the overinflated power of sport is the fact that they could suggest mandating surgery, that they can suggest the hormone treatments and other kinds of treatments for people that would radically change their lives in order to for them to compete in sport. That means sport doesn't understand its place in society. I, I think at, at times it, it almost seems especially over the last couple of years, it really seems sometimes like we're going backwards with some of this stuff. And, you know, there's so many examples that I can think of, of athletes being on the end of pretty horrific racist abuse. We saw what happened with the Euros and uh, Marcus Rashford, Jadon Sancho and, and Bukayo Saka. And, you know, this kind of brings us back to where, where we started in the podcast when we talked about the idea of a meritocracy. And how ridiculous a notion that actually is, mm. because even on the pitch where, you know, if, if you manage to actually get to the pitch, 
that's the place where talent and hard work is supposed to uh, you know, rise to the top, right? That should be all that matters. But you've got these athletes of color who've got this extra layer of stress, this extra layer um, to, to deal with. I was reading the other day, uh, Saka said it, shortly after the Euros, I knew instantly what was going to happen. Uh, I knew instantly the kind of hate that I was about to receive. Rio Ferdinand, I think literally this afternoon, uh, has been talking about this. Um, and to be honest, I, I don't know a person of color in the entire country who didn't watch that thinking, oh God, I know what's coming. Yep. When those three players miss penalties. When they started warming up, I was thinking, oh God, I hope they score because I know what's coming. Of course. This, this is part of, this is one of the amazing things about colorism in the broadest sense is that, and, and, it's, and its connection to privilege. What a privilege it must be to listen to a newscaster on TV talk about a serial rapist and murderer who looks the same as you as a white person and know that when you walk out of your front door, there will be no additional ramification for you whatsoever. No employer will look at you in your next job and think, are you like that person? Those two young kids who blew up the marathon in Boston. Mm -hmm. uh, it, the the, the 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 people who the the white terrorists who who actually do the vast majority of terrorism around America. What what a privilege to know that that won't come back at you and and what an indictment of this nonsense about there not being a system of racism, when every black and brown person can watch the warm ups <laughs> of those penalties and be thinking not go England or some derivation thereof but rather, please don't miss, because our lives will be harder if you do. Not your life, our life. Mm -hmm. I don't know why people don't, don't understand that. Is it, it must be purposeful, right? If you're a white psychologist working with black athletes, this must be part of your vernacular. This must be part of your eloquence and your expertise. It must be. Otherwise, you'll become unwillingly perhaps unknowingly perhaps part of the problem hmm. but I, I think this is part of the problem because it, it it is difficult to understand you know that, that the knowing that we're talking mm -hmm. about here that is difficult to understand if you haven't experienced that on a, on a sort of you know intellectual level you can probably get what somebody's talking about but unless you've really experienced that and I think again part of the training of, of sports psychologists in particular, it, we we did an, an episode on cultural awareness with uh, um, Shamima Youssef and Ale Kwarti Roli, uh, and we talked about some of these issues. The, the need for psychologists to be culturally aware. I, I think the problem is that, well, one of the arguments that I've heard a lot is, well, I want to treat everybody as they come. I want to treat everybody the same way, which is. Stupid. No, no, don't use any other word. It's stupid. <laughs> I'm sorry, you don't get to get to the point where you've got a PhD or a master's in psychology and say something so on its face, stupid. It, look, the golden rule is <clears throat> Bronze Age sophistry. Let's stop with that. The golden rule is ridiculous. Treat others how you want to be treated. It's just some same version of uh, of how of kind of treat everybody the same it's absurd because everybody isn't the same 
We all know that kid in, on, on a team who responds really well when you in front of the team, you say, come on, come on, Pete, you can do better than that. I expect more of you. And you know, you see how they, they look at their teammates, they realize that and they, and they rise. Mm. We all know the other kid who, if you do the same, will disappear for two weeks. Instead, you take them aside and you say, you know, you're letting your teammates down now. What are you going to... We don't treat everybody the same because people aren't the same. And I'm not suggesting that for cultural awareness, what you need to do is to look at you and me and imagine we are both the same and we both respond the same to everything. Mm. But it is about an individuation of our care and attention and vigilance. It is about the first part of our job being getting to know individuals. If we are going to try and get into their minds, at least the least you could do as a person who gets into the minds of other people is take your shoes off before you jump in. Mm. Is make sure that you observe at least some of the cursory niceties of their mind rather than thinking, you know what? I wouldn't handle it that way. I would like it this way. What a narcissist charter. Treat everybody the way you want to be treated. But I, no. I, I, I think the, the frustrating thing for me is, is exactly as you say, you know, we know this. We know that we don't sit down with an eight year old boy who plays football. And work with him in the same way that I would work with a 25-year-old woman. We know that we don't work in the same way. But when it comes to culture, race, there's a real hesitancy. And again, I don't know if it's just fear or an unwillingness to acknowledge or any of those things. But we have to That's get no excuse. It. Well, no, it's of no course excuse. not. Fear, no, fear is no excuse. Comfort is no excuse. I'm over that now. Fear is no excuse. I know it's, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm uncomfortable most days. I sit in meetings with people and I'm like, oh my God, am I, can I handle this problem? I've not seen this before. We enter a new sector in, in business and I'm like, oh my God, I've got to learn about investment banking and I didn't know anything about it before. And, and that's just the baseline knowledge I need to have to be able to do my job. Hmm. And so when I look at people who I don't understand, I, 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 I do two things. There are two things coupled that make a difference to me. Benign ignorance. Instead of looking at somebody and trying to do that thing that as psychologists, I know it's so tempting to do. Oh, tattoos on the arm, <laughs> ring on that finger, piercings, braids. And now I know this person. Instead of doing that bollocks, I look at a person and say, right, nope, any knee-jerk stuff that comes to my mind, I'm going to throw it out. I'm going to do benign ignorance. I admit to myself that I don't actually know anything about you, but that's not enough. I couple it with enthusiastic inquisitiveness. I'm going to make it clear to the person I'm talking to, eight-year-old boy, 25-year-old woman, in football or out, whatever you'd like to share with me, I would love to know. That's what I'm going to do to build this relationship in a way that's authentic. And I'm going to do some therapeutic sharing too that's appropriate so that they know where I am and what I stand for. And the idea that you can treat a footballer a certain way or a fencer a certain way or anybody a certain way just is an anathema to me. Mm. And we do know this, right? I mean, there are... Well, like I said, I think of, of course we do. We do know this when it comes to other things. But like I say, when it comes to, to race, people are just really... I, I don't know what happens. <laughs> I really don't. I, mean. I, th I think we need to start examining... Um, when people do not do things that they know will be deleterious to the experience of a client because it's personally uncomfortable, to me, that's an ethical compromise. Mm. 
if you are un- why are you uncomfortable? If you are a if you're a white person who's uncomfortable with black people, if you're a man who's uncomfortable working with women athletes, if you're a uh, if you're a straight um, therapist, uh, psychologist who, who's uncomfortable working with LGBT athletes, why? There is an implication for the things that clever people choose not to know. Psychologists, sports psychologists, some of the smartest people around, and yet you don't know how to work with people who make up eighty percent in some of your sports. Mm. You don't know how to. You don't know them. Why are they strangers to you when you're fifty? or 40, or 30, why are they strangers to you when you played football with them, five to five, and maybe even still do? There's an implication for the things that clever people choose not to know, and I think people need to do some introspection on that. I'm... Um... I think we're coming to the to the end of the time that we've got. I've got one one final question for you. Um, and what what can my what can my white colleagues in sport do or continue to do that goes beyond the great racism boot club of 2020 that we all enjoyed for a few months? You know, and, and to a certain extent, I guess my colleagues of color as well. You know, what what can we do that moves us beyond where we all were last year? there's two things two sides of things one is personal and effortful and dull and not very rewarding and and will engage you in conflict the other is dull and effortful and will cost you in other ways the thing that will cost you in other ways is the idea that you demand that the organizations that you are a part of live up to their stated values. We don't need to do anything else. You don't need to introduce new stuff. Most of the organizations, most of the governing bodies, most of the regulatory bodies, they already have the provisions in place, but hold them to account for that. And when they don't, say something. On the personal side, every single person listening to this, white, black, or otherwise, needs to tell people what they stand for. Because people don't know. They don't know. And they need to know. I'm anti-racist, I'm anti-misogynist, I'm an atheist, and I'm anti-anti-Semitism, and I'm anti-Islamophobia. I'm anti-transphobia and homophobia. You name the incivility, I want to kill it with fire. That's who I am. Test me. That's what I tell everybody. I'm the one. I'm the fun sponge. I'm the politically correct one. You come into a team, Zoom, whatever it is called with me, I'm the one who will say something. You end up in my physical space, and if it's your house, I won't care. I'm the one who will call you on it. Because my declaration of principle is meaningless. If you can behave to the opposite of those principles around me. Psychologists, we have a duty of care. We have a duty of candor. We have a duty of principle. And that means conflict. If you're up for that, we can make a difference. If not, we'll be talking about this in five years' time when the next appropriately 
sympathetic black person is murdered. I'm a light-hearted read. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to end on something positive because a lot of this conversation that we've had has been... Um, what? Being ranting again? No, <laughs> <laughs> no but it's a, it's a subject matter that people find uncomfortable. And, you know, again, my response and your response to that is, well, tough. But, it, you know, it's been quite heavy-hitting, I suppose. And I want to end on something positive. Now... Again, I just mentioned the the recent examples of of athletes uh, um, receiving abuse over social media. Uh, Joe Wilcox, uh, Newcastle player, talked about the fact that he he can't he can't just enjoy being on social media the same way everybody else does because of the abuse that is constant. Uh, Sloane Stevens, the American uh, tennis player, she talked about the same thing, the kind of abuse that she's received. And I think, to be fair. There's a bit of a double whammy here of social media providing the means for racist idiots to howl at the moon, mm-hmm. but also provides a window for us to see them. So there's that. But I, but I, I do want to end on, on, on a positive note. I was asked this question recently in the context of higher education, um, and I'm going to ask you the same question in the context of what we've been talking about in the podcast. Why should we be optimistic? Because for every disappointment I witness on an almost daily basis, on an almost daily basis, I get just a glimpse of the profound or wonderful therapeutic and warm ways human beings can heal each other. We should be optimistic because when I look at psychology, at its core, although we struggle with this thing of not being real scientists and trying to prove ourselves (laughs) constantly, at its core, the idea that we are people trained to, with our very presence alone often, it's often not some therapeutic matrix or some 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 deep therapy it's with our presence alone with our force of will and attention can bolster heal and enhance not just the performance but the thriving of individuals in the most difficult of circumstances i believe that that is what psychologists want to do and when they experience that it will help them redouble their efforts to do some of this introspection that we need. It's not that psychologists are being bad right now. It's just that we could be better. So much better. And I, I'm optimistic that we will be. I think, I think that is as, as good a place as any to, uh, to wind things up. Cause again, I know that your time is precious. Uh, John Amici, OBE, giant, Jedi, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I really value this chat and I hope that our listeners get something from it uh, as well. So thank you very much. A pleasure as always. Thank you. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode. I hope that you listened attentively with care. And I hope that it's provided the motive and the means for some introspection. I don't shy away from talking about issues of race and injustice. 
Those of you who follow me on Twitter might have noticed that. But there's nothing to shy away from. We owe it to our athletes, our coaches, our colleagues, our friends to really consider what's being said during this episode. If you disagree with anything, really think about why you disagree with it. Think about what it is that you stand for, whatever that might be. Because only when you do that is it possible to be truly authentic. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.